This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Why are the radicals planning a revolution against all of humanity? As God created our parents in the Garden of Eden, he said, Let us make man in our image and likeness, and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea, and the fowls of the air, and the beast, and the whole earth, and every creeping creature that moveth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. To the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the air, and all living creatures that move upon the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Two things are clear about humanity from these verses. First, humans were invested with at least some of the characteristics of God, specifically the ability to reason. Second, God intended humanity to use the earthly resources that he created. Today, there are those who are fighting a revolution against humanity. They are self-hating people who carry a label devised by the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, Nihilist. Mr. John Horvat recently penned an essay in which he considered the state of these pitiable beings and how they can be rescued from their self-loathing. His essay is titled, Only the Pursuit of Wisdom Can Overcome the Triumph of Nihilism. Friedrich Nietzsche foresaw that a time would come when people would be confused about the meaning and purpose of life. In 1887, he wrote that the scientific materialist worldview of his time would usher in, quote, the advent of nihilism, unquote. He defined this state as a spiritual condition in which, quote, an aim is missing and the question why finds no answer, unquote. The ramblings of the German professor come to mind when trying to understand a recent study that found that American teenagers, especially young girls, are increasingly sad and despondent. The report shows that America has reached an advanced state of nihilism since youth, which should be the most given to optimism, has plunged into dark gloom. This tragic trend is not the ordinary youth rebellion that characterized post-Second World War America. This new generation is different from others in that it serves no specific causes and recognizes no mass protests against supposed injustices. More often than not, its action is characterized by inaction and inertia. Many, not all, of this teen generation shun direct social interaction that can lead to meaningful relationships. The result is that teenagers are increasingly affected by persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that they are much more likely to harbor suicidal thoughts and act on them than previous generations. The age of suicide is becoming ever younger, with some occurring in those under 10. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey is usually conducted every two years, based on the opinions of 17,000 high school students nationwide. Every report since 2011 has reported increases in mental disorders in youth. 
This hopelessness reflects a turning point as youth face a broken society without anchors or points of reference. Commentators are quick to find causes for this disorder that suit their leanings. Some blame the advent of social media and the iPhone for these new anxieties. These developments contributed to the problem by introducing a shallowness of thought that prevents people from thinking through life's challenges. When everything is instantaneous, people have no time to ponder the question, why? However, this change of pace and depth does not have the substance to cause such disastrous effects on the lives of countless teenagers. Something deeper is gnawing at the soul of these poor, unfortunate teens. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic wrote an essay that polarized the causes. He claims liberals blame teenage anxieties on the fear of school shootings, climate change, or even the omnipresent and unpredictable antics of Donald Trump. Conservatives might point to identity politics, social unrest, or conspiracy theories. The COVID-era lockdowns unlocked fears and anxieties across the board. Again, such an analysis misses the mark. These problems might contribute to the effects of this malaise. However, youth have always faced crises in history. Anything can be the cause of insecurity, especially among inexperienced youth. The present hopelessness speaks of something much more fundamental. It suggests that the means of understanding problems and dealing with threats have fallen apart. When these facilities are gone, everything becomes threatening. It leads to the snowflake that cannot deal with adversity or understand reality. What is missing is the child's sense of innocence. Innocence is that innate ability in children where they pursue with exuberance an understanding of the universe. It is the desire to know the essence of things, to seek after and imagine perfections, absolutes, and ideals. Inside a world of wonder, children develop the desire to penetrate and know God. Childhood is that window of opportunity when children learn to ask and answer the question of why. Innocence helps them build a framework to understand the problem and rationally deal with life's ups and downs. This innocence will mature throughout their lives and aid them in practicing the virtue of wisdom. Answering Nietzsche's advent of nihilism is another German philosopher, Joseph Piper, who celebrates the pursuit of wisdom, commonly defined as finding the highest cause of things and acting accordingly. Piper writes of wisdom. To know the highest cause, then, does not mean to know the cause of some particular thing, but to know the cause of everything and of all things. It means to know the whither and the whence, the origin and the end, the plan and the structure, the framework and the meaning of reality. Unquote. Indeed, a framework of wisdom allows individuals to understand and deal with reality. It creates a culture full of meaning and will necessarily lead to God and sanctification. 
Many things attack childhood innocence, a hypersexualized culture, irreligion, sin, secular education, drag queen story hours, and broken families. However, the most terrifying and traumatic factor causing this hopelessness is the loss of childhood innocence. Children grow up with the idea that there is no framework to understand the universe beyond the fantasies they were encouraged to create. They are told that there is no whither and whence. Everything is matter in random motion without purpose. There is no highest cause from which all meaning flows. This terrible void permeates everything and everywhere. The frustrated innocence of countless teenagers turns to escape, hopelessness, and nihilism. The solution lies not only in attacking those things that threaten innocence, but in filling the void inside the soul with the whither and whence. Then, the question of why can find an answer. Of course, a revolt against humanity would also be considered a revolt against humanity's creator. Mr. Horvat considers that aspect in his essay. The revolt against humanity describes a future without God. The book, The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us, does not make a very good first impression. One reason is that the 2023 work is an awfully small book to deal with such a monumental subject as human extinction. The elimination of humanity should merit something more than a mere hundred pages. The impulse is to disregard it as a booklet, pamphlet, or tract. However, in this case, looks are entirely deceiving. The author, Adam Kirsch, is an art critic and editor for the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Review section. He is deadly serious about narrating the story of the human extinction movement. Publisher Columbia Global Reports is an imprint of Columbia University, representing an official endorsement of the establishment. The book itself is a well-designed and high-quality publication. It aims to impress and even to intimidate. Thus, Americans should take notice and beware. From a Catholic perspective, it describes a plan that directly challenges the Creator. Rarely are such plans revealed with such clarity. The human extinction people are not environmentalists of the Rachel Carson Silent Spring variety. The old school of ecologists wants to prevent humanity from ruining the earth. It advocates recycling, carbon credits, and Green New Deal programs to make the planet a cleaner place to live. This old form of eco-thinking has become yesterday's revolution and is rejected as not radical enough. The human extinction people want to remove humanity from the universe. Quote, Even the most radical 20th century thinkers stop short at the prospects of the actual extinction of our species, Mr. Kirsch notes. To dispel any notion that this movement is insignificant, 
He notes that it is found in Silicon Valley boardrooms, academia, and other places of influence. It is becoming mainstream. He writes, It is already spread beyond the fringes of the intellectual world, and in the coming years and decades, it has the potential to transform politics and society in profound ways. Unquote. The human extinction movement is divided into two groups that differ in how they want to eliminate humanity. The first is the anti-humanist faction that believes humanity's self-destruction is inevitable and everyone should welcome annihilation as a just sentence for destroying the earth. The second group consists of the transhumanists. These believe that through technological and scientific progress, Humanity should advance to an improved and immortal cybernetic form that will transcend Homo sapiens. Both visions reject the Catholic vision of creation, humanity, original sin, and redemption. The central thesis of the first group, the anti-humanist extinctionists, is a denial of humanity's central role in creation. Indeed, Mr. Kirsch quotes Genesis, where God gives humans, quote, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the earth. See Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The anti-humanists want to abolish this dominion, which they deem hateful. They claim that humans are no longer part of nature, but work as an anti-natural force to destroy the earth. Even indigenous peoples are cited as earth explorers for their hunting, gathering, fire-starting, and herding. Humans must go. All of them. Anti-humanists also believe in a radical egalitarianism where all manner, organic or non-organic, is equal. Non-human matter is deemed superior to humanity since it does not destroy others by dominion. Thus, anti-humanists promote a solidarity with non-human people that recognizes the rights of, quote, animals, plants, stones, and waterfalls that inhabit the world in their own ways, which are just as valid as ours, unquote. However, the only real solution for the earth is the eventual elimination of humanity. The anti-humanists only stay around long enough to ensure the project is done. One prominent anti-humanist author is Patricia McCormick, who calls for, quote, an end to the human, both conceptually as exceptionalized and actually as a species, unquote. She further claims, quote, the death of the human species is the most life-affirming event that could liberate the natural world from oppression, unquote. Another author, David Benatar, wrote a book titled Better Never to Have Been, the harm of coming into existence. He claims that giving birth is morally wrong and thus calls for abortion, suicide, and euthanasia. 
In contrast to the morbid tenets of the anti-humanists, there is the cheerful optimism of the transhumanists. They believe Homo sapiens must morph into an ever-new species over trillions of years. The benefits of this transformation include a complete liberation from Adam's curse of involuntary suffering. Aging will be slowed or abolished and immortality achieved. Humanity will have access to new colors, sounds, and feelings impossible to describe now. Human brains will be turbocharged and bodies redesigned. Thus, while the transhumanists seek to eliminate suffering and mortality, the real target of their hatred is the idea of a fixed human nature. They believe minds and bodies, quote, should be endlessly plastic, able to assume whatever shape and enjoy whatever experiences our ingenuity can invent, unquote. They want to change human nature and thus God's design and intent for humanity. Many transhumanists hold that humanity and the universe can be reduced to one thing, data. People are nothing but organized data, and life is the interactions of algorithms. Data flow governs the universe and thus facilitates a constantly changing nature. The drive to interconnect everything will make the universe come alive with data patterns and transform it into one giant mind. Inside such a fluid world, the human faces the limitation of an organic body that exists in time, space, and causation. Thus, the transhumanists favor the disembodiment of humanity. If a person is just information patterns, it does not matter where that information resides, a body, a computer chip, or the metaverse. The underlying philosophy of transhumanism is best expressed by Mr. Kirsch, who declares, quote, First, we know that the human mind has a completely material basis. There is no intangible soul or spirit that occupies our bodies. The experience of being an I is produced by chemical electrical processes in the brain. This thoroughgoing materialism is still resisted by most religious believers, but science has known it for a long time. There is no metaphysical gulf between human and animal or between animate and inanimate matter. The only difference has to do with how matter is organized. Unquote. Once disembodied, people thus organized can live in imaginary worlds with unlimited means of fulfilling the dream of complete mastery long pursued since the beginning of the species. While anti-humanists and transhumanists differ in their approaches, they share a metaphysical hatred of creation and the Creator. They both confide in a radical egalitarianism that excludes any dominion found in the Catholic order. Some might ask why Catholics should be concerned by such ideas that appear removed from their daily lives. However, 
The themes of both schools are found all over postmodern culture. Transhumanist ideas pervade Hollywood films and mold the minds of Elon Musk-type figures. Anti-humanist propaganda dominates today's culture of death and eco-friendly anti-development models. No one escapes from these ideas. Mr. Kirsch says that this revolution has the potential to, quote, turbocharge the central ideological structure in America and Europe with unpredictable consequences for politics, economics, technology, and culture, unquote. However, the main reason why Catholics need to oppose this threat is surprising. The author dedicates his last chapter to listing the serious obstacles faced by the human extinction movement and says something entirely unexpected. The obstacles to this program are religious principles, especially those professed by the Catholic Church. These Catholic positions are keeping this program from happening. He claims that religious humanity resists, quote, with a strength that seems to be growing over time, rather than a weakening as social scientists once anticipated, unquote. Indeed, only the Church has reassuring answers to the fundamental questions about the meaning and purpose of life by offering a divinely ordained plan. The author laments the nihilist response of postmodernity that fills humanity with existential horror. Two Catholic notions are among the many religious obstacles. They are deeply embedded in human nature and are enjoying a renaissance among Catholic thinkers. The first is the Catholic idea of natural law, positing that individuals should act according to fixed human nature. The author qualifies natural law as the embrace of limit, quote, directly opposed to the ideals of enlightened humanism, from Pico della Mirandola to the transhumanists, which cherishes our ability to abolish boundaries and challenge authority, unquote. The second obstacle is the Catholic notion of sacrifice in which the believer voluntarily gives up a part of his freedom. This act becomes a concrete expression of the belief that the believer serves something more important than himself. Indeed, the central act of Catholic worship is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Enlightened thought can offer nothing to replace what human nature craves. It presents no motive for sacrifice, absolute reward, or higher authority. Thus, the two sides are engaged in a culture war as the liberal order fades. Mr. Kirsch frames the debate with a familiar narrative of a battle between enlightened pseudoscientific liberals and uneducated religious zealots. The nonchalance with which the human extinction movement treats the death of billions does not speak of light, but of darkness. However, the fact that the Church poses the major obstacle through this diabolical plan should encourage all Catholics to keep up the good fight. 
However, this existential battle needs to be better framed. The human extinction movement is a revolt against God, not against humanity. Hopefully, its enlightened partisans will figure out that they are on the wrong side of history. For God always wins. Of course, most people, including conventional liberals, look at the human extinction movement and shake their heads. It is as if they are seeing some sort of weird sea creature for the first time. What the head shakers don't realize is that this new movement has the roots in the same enlightenment ideas that they adore. Mr. John Horvat connects the dots in his essay, The Human Extinction Movement Targets God and You. Before modernity, Christianity guided individuals to live according to human nature and the moral law established by the Creator. This system allowed families and societies to prosper and help people in their quest for sanctification and the final destination of heaven. The 18th century Enlightenment threw everything into darkness. People claimed they could not have certainty about God, His moral law, or heaven. Through science and reason, they imagined a world without God and moral restraints. They made liberty, not sanctification, the supreme achievement of life. Over time, people have followed this freedom to include the right to do just about everything, even self-destruction. It hardly seems possible that humanity would have degenerated from desiring heaven to seeking out annihilation, but that is what is happening. A growing human extinction movement is moving out of the fringes and into the mainstream. These people do not want to exist, nor do they want others to survive. The quest for non-being comes when liberalism, which acclaims reason and science, is crumbling. 19th century liberalism sought to establish a regime where humanity would be freed from the restrictions of tradition, religion, and social structures. This vision proposed the liberated individual as the supreme model and controller of personal destiny. People dreamed of a super-industrialized society that would facilitate this freedom so that all could be whatever they wanted. Thus, modernity built a society that sought freedom inside a naturalistic and materialistic vision of reality, excluding the official recognition of anything supernatural and spiritual. It frustrated people because they could not satisfy spiritual desires that are part of human nature. Postmodernity entered the scene in the 60s and introduced a new kind of exhilarating freedom that sought not after reason and science, but the more spiritual imagination, fantasy, and unreality. Individuals freed themselves from internal structures like reason, identity, and narratives. People can be whatever they want to be, or even not to be at all. Hence comes the 21st century human extinction movement. It is a consequence of exacerbated freedom that finds the most basic structures of identity and even biology suffocating. 
For example, advocates like Israeli author Yuval Noah Harari deny the existence of the soul, free will, consciousness, and self. All these restrictive structures must be eliminated. Indeed, being becomes onerous and oppressive, leading to the desire for human extinction. In a feature article in The Atlantic, December 1, 2022, writer Adam Kirsch traces this path to extinction. His new book is expressively titled The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining the Future Without Us. He documents the growing acceptance of human extinction everywhere. He writes, quote, From Silicon Valley boardrooms to rural communes to academic philosophy departments, a seemingly inconceivable idea is being seriously discussed, that the end of humanity's reign on earth is imminent and that we should welcome it. Unquote. The revolt against humanity can be re- divided into two contrary currents. They may radically disagree on many issues, but they share the desire for the disappearance of humans from the earth. Human extinction ideas have already entered the postmodern world. It is found in the emphasis on experience over human life, as seen in procured abortion, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and ecological schemes. Others call for nihilism, the abandonment of civilization, and the end of childbearing, which is already reflected in demographic trends. The enemy is humanity that must be suppressed, even those who do not desire extinction. The actual target, however, is God, since man is made in his image and likeness. The human extinction currents want the image and likeness of God erased or replaced. They cannot bear an existence by which one is indebted to a benevolent creator. Both currents are the logical result of Enlightenment liberal thought that imagines a self-centered world without God. Both share a hatred for the Creator and His wise limitations on finite creatures that secure their happiness. Unable to become gods, advocates of these currents seek annihilation for everyone, be it as a species or a transitional stage of development. This attitude mirrors Satan's, who would prefer not to exist rather than to serve God. This concludes, Why are the Radicals Planning a Revolution Against All of Humanity? Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, 
or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.